You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well. I trust you're well. I trust our listeners are enjoying the podcast and well themselves. Last week, we got down into the weeds of inverters and rules and standards. Uh, this week, I think we're going to be looking at the at the big uh, pictures well, that's right. Yes, we'll see. Last week, we sort of broadcast from the Smart Energy Conference and gave a bit of a rundown and had a couple of spot interviews with various people. Um, this week, we're actually going to go in depth with one of the keynote speakers, um, Andrew Dixon from CWP. They've teamed up with Intercontinental Energy and a couple of other players such as Vestas and Macquarie for what would be the biggest renewable energy project in Australia. It's 26 gigawatts wind and solar in Western Australia. Um, the idea to produce hydrogen and now a um, without further ado, let's just hop straight into this interview. So, Andrew Dixon, um, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast once again. Good day, Giles. Look, you were um, one of the many visitors or speakers at the Smart Energy Conference last week, and it was quite fascinating to see that there was actually a whole tent or a whole sort of section um, given over to hydrogen plus storage, but really it was mostly about hydrogen. I mean, the interest and the number of projects, both the number and the scale of them, have just grown enormously in the last couple of years. No question. Um, I mean, there's enormous buzz around hydrogen. Um, yeah, many countries, many states are coming out with their strategies. But from my perspective, a, a massive part of the hydrogen future is actually an ammonia future. And so that's that's what we're pursuing through the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. Yes, so, that's right. So, no, no, David, just wait for two seconds. Um, so, um, <laughs> give, me, on, give, me, give me two questions, David, and then you can jump in. So just, just for the benefit of our listeners, um, the ammonia thing, I think, was the question I was going to get to next. Um, the Asia Renewables Energy Hub, of which you are one of the major partners, along with um, Intercontinental, um, a European-based company, which incidentally emerged as a major shareholder in a 25 gigawatt play in Oman, which is quite mm-hmm. fascinating. So not the only one. Now, just for the benefit of the listeners, yours is now a 26 gigawatt project, 16 gigawatts of wind, 10 gigawatts of solar, plus a massive electrolyzer plant. Tell us why, beyond the original idea of a cable, the secondary ideas of exporting green hydrogen, why ammonia has suddenly come to form a major part of the picture. Okay, so the last time we spoke on this podcast several years ago, we were still planning to export electrons with subsea cables. Um, I mean, we've we've always been conceived as a large-scale energy export project. The question is how to do that. Um, we pivoted towards hydrogen because, and then ammonia because um, we we can scale and we can increase the amount of decarbonisation that's possible. And also it opens up a much bigger base of, of customers. So once you load a, a chemical or a molecule, a fuel effectively onto a ship, you can send it in theory anywhere in the world. 
So it increases the, the number of customers. Um, and also, you know, we're not constrained anymore by linear infrastructure that has a certain capacity constraint. And therefore, we scaled from a six gigawatt project to a 26 gigawatt project. So uh, Giles and I think alike, because I was going to ask more or less exactly that question. Uh, but can you explain for our listeners why ammonia rather than hydrogen? Yeah. Okay. So hydrogen is, I mean, it, in an ideal world, we would stop at hydrogen. Hydrogen is a master molecule that can be used for many things, for you know, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, for direct reduction of, of iron ore to produce steel, uh, to, you know, to combust for power generation. However, it's a very tiny molecule. You know, it's number one on the periodic table, uh, and it's a sneaky little uh, atom that uh, can penetrate and change the materials it's stored in. So, for example, if it's stored in certain types of steel, it can embrittle the steel because it's so small, it changes the, the material structure. Um, and it's, and to, 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 to transport a lot of it, you need to liquefy it, just like liquefying natural gas to produce LNG. However, LNG needs to be minus 160 degrees Celsius, roughly, to be liquid, but hydrogen needs to be minus 253, which is almost absolute zero. So that's a, that's a massive challenge, and it takes a lot of energy, whereas ammonia um, only needs to be minus 33 degrees. Uh, and all the technology risk with you know, storing hydrogen at minus 253 is not an issue at all with ammonia because it's been produced and traded for almost 100 years. So, yeah, large existing market, future enormous markets opening up for ammonia as ammonia. So, yeah, that's why we've, we've pivoted to ammonia. Yeah, so I guess the, the cost of shipping, the landed cost in, in a destination country like uh, Japan, for instance, or, or, or somewhere in Asia, would be a lot less uh, than the landed cost of hydrogen produced in Australia. Is, is, is that right? That's correct. I mean, all of this stuff is changing. You know, there, are, there are various different ca carriers or vectors for hydrogen. One of them is liquid hydrogen. One is ammonia. Uh, liquid organic hydrogen carriers like methylcyclohexane, methanol. The technologies are all evolving very quickly. Um, but it's not just shipping. It's also storing and handling in the host country. Um, but, you know, ammonia has been around for a long time. Um, there are, you know, there's over 120 ports around the world equipped with ammonia terminals. Uh, there's many production sources around the world. So it's an existing supply chain that can be repurposed away from just fertilizers to, to power generation and shipping fuels. So I, I guess, Andrew, and I'll hand back to Giles after this one, um, uh, I guess we started that initially your project was exporting via electricity at, through a cable and the market for that you know, and the decarbonisation market is, is very obvious. I mean, every country has lots of electricity. The markets for hydrogen uh, are sort of embryonic. Uh, there is a, there's a market for, for ammonia but not large-scale decarbonisation market, if I can put it that way. So won't you have to uh, convert the ammonia back to something else? And I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but uh, or can you use the ammonia? Tell us about the end market in, in power generation, mm. how, how we get there. 
Okay, most people who think about hydrogen think about fuel cells for mobility, um, uh, like the you know Japanese and Korean vehicles that that have uh, gaseous hydrogen. That's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about ammonia as a fuel that can be used to power ship engines or can be co-fired in thermal power stations. So there's been a lot of activity in Japan in the last almost decade looking at how to decarbonize their power system. Uh, after Fukushima 10 years ago, Japan pivoted back from nuclear generation to a large extent to coal and gas, um, but you know at the cost of emissions. So they did a lot of research on how to use hydrogen and derivatives like ammonia to reduce emissions in their thermal power stations. So you know I think where this will start um, is shipping fuels but also co-firing ammonia in coal-fired power stations. So this, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive for a renewables guy to be contemplating selling to, to combust a fuel in a, in a coal-fired power station, but it's actually quite technically easy and it's quite scalable. So Japan can ratchet up its decarbonisation by implementing co-firing in coal-fired power stations at 20% co-firing rate um, and then ratcheting it up 30, 40, 50%, and thereby, you know, having very considerable scaled uh, emission reductions in Japan. From that 20, 30, 40, 50%, do you actually get that equivalent reduction in emissions from the coal generation? It totally depends on the type of ammonia. So this, this, this is the key. Um, one of the key inputs to ammonia is hydrogen. Ammonia is NH3, so you need both nitrogen and hydrogen. But there are different ways of producing hydrogen. And you may have heard the, you know, the terms brown, blue and green. So uh, one of them uses fossil fuels, the other one uses renewable energy. So it totally depends on the carbon intensity of the hydrogen that then determines the carbon intensity of the of the ammonia produced with that hydrogen. So just to clarify then, just to make it absolutely clear in my mind and, and hopefully the listener's mind, so to create this hydrogen and then this ammonia, you're basically using your wind and your solar and you're using that to sort of um, drive the electrolyzers, which creates the hydrogen, basically cracking water, splitting water into two, oxygen and hydrogen. And then you'll be then using that green hydrogen to mix it in with nitrogen to make the ammonia. Okay, so I'll talk you through how the protest works. <laughs> um, so, I knew it was too simple. <laughs> I wish I could show you visually, but basically we have wind and solar at a huge scale over a very big site. That generate that turns the wind and sun into electrons, yeah? And then we use the electrons for a bunch of what we call downstream processes. So initially we desalinate seawater sea to produce fresh water. We then run electrical current through that fresh water called electrolysis to split off the hydrogen from the, the oxygen and we capture the hydrogen. Then we distill nitrogen from the air. About 78% of the air we breathe is nitrogen. So we distill that. And then we combine hydrogen and nitrogen to form ammonia in H3. So that's that's the process. And, and each step of that journey, you know, these are all proven technologies, but they're being combined in a new way to produce green ammonia. And I'm just like one other question before handing back to Dave. I'm just wondering about the scale of this thing. We've got this sort of um, breathless press release from the South Australian government this week talking about the country's biggest electrolyzer so far, started operations, 1.25 megawatts. You're talking about electrolyzers of 14,000 megawatts. How quickly can we scale from 1.25 to 
14,000. Okay, the first thing to bear in mind is that you know, with projects like ours, we're not going to build it all in one go. We're going to build it in phases over around a decade. So we'll start construction in around 2025, 26, and we'll finish construction in the mid-2030s. So, I mean, you know, we have enormous wind and solar uh, generation projects. And, all, I mean, what they are is replicating standardised modules, you know, thousands or millions of winter, uh, uh, solar panels, thousands of wind turbines. It's exactly the same, but also now with electrolyzers. You're right, though, that um, electrolyzers are at the very early stages of ramping up in production. Arguably, they are where solar PV was maybe 13, 14 years ago. Um, there, there isn't the capacity currently to do what we need to do, but you know, demand from projects like ours will, will drive a dramatic increase in production of electrolyzers, which we need, both you know, the, the large numbers and to, and to drive down the costs. So, Andrew, I'd like to come back to the costs because, you know, even the desalination process is reasonably energy intensive and might uh, reduce the economics of the project compared to other ones. And I also want to talk about scale and capacity utilisation if we get time. That's the costs. But let's work back to that. Uh, obviously, to get a project like this going, you have to have customers. I mean, I know as an investor or an analyst that the first thing you look to in, say, an LNG project is the is the quality of the revenue, you know, and the customer. How are, how are you going with marketing this? And you mentioned shipping in the first instance. I mean, is, do you think there's what's the indications of the demand for for the project? Okay, so all of this is moving very, very quickly. At the moment, the main markets for ammonia are fertilisers and explosives. Um, I mean, at the mo- I mean, ammonia is the it, um, it's the second most uh, commonly produced chemical in the world, behind sulfuric acid, uh, almost a hundred million tonnes per year. But almost all of it goes into fertilisers and explosives. What we're now talking about is ammonia energy. So, you know, currently ammonia, NH3, hydrogen is a carrier for nitrogen. Nitrogen is what you want for plant growth. Now we're kind of pimping it, we're changing it so that um, um, nitrogen becomes a carrier for hydrogen and therefore ammonia becomes a fuel. And if it's produced from renewables, as we propose, it's a clean fuel. So at the moment, that market doesn't exist, but it is emerging quickly. Um, So I mentioned Japan. They are just starting their first implementation at a coal-fired power station called Hekanan. It's a 4.1 gigawatt coal-fired power station with five boilers. This year, they are starting to implement in one of the boilers, a one gigawatt boiler, 20% co-firing of ammonia, and then they'll run a trial for three years. If that is successful, if it works as they hope, then JERA, the biggest generator in Japan, you know, with over 70 gigawatts of capacity, they have a roadmap to roll it out in all of their coal-fired power stations, starting at 20% and then increasing 30, 40, 50. And that is one of the ways that they will achieve their net zero commitment by 2050. Yeah, I read about that project and and uh, it's interesting. I'm guessing that the ammonia they're using at the moment is not obviously green ammonia, but it's just ammonia and I guess an ammonia molecule doesn't know where it came from. In, but uh, And also, I guess there's a huge cost differential at the moment between dirty ammonia and clean ammonia. Um, so that will kind of preclude for the time without a big carbon price using clean ammonia uh, in, in the fertiliser and explosives industry. Is, is that a reasonable comment? So... 
ammonia prices are have been historically low for the last decade or so. Um, I mean, there was a, there's an overproduction of of ammonia, but it's changing. It's starting to increase in price at the same time as green uh, green ammonia producers will drive down the cost of green. So green green gets cheaper and cheaper over time as wind and solar and electrolyzers scale and decrease in cost. So it's a very different proposition. And then, of course, there's the issue of carbon pricing. Um, ammonia is a, is a highly carbon-intensive product if produced from fossil fuels. One tonne of ammonia from coal or gas will produce two to three tonnes of CO2 at the point of production. So, but whereas green ammonia has zero, has zero carbon. So, as you know, we start factoring in the the cost of carbon, you know, bringing in the externalities, um, fossil fuel based ammonia and hydrogen is very vulnerable. So, yeah, the dynamics we expect will shift quickly. But of course, markets will start with fossil fuel approaches because they're available today, and they are currently cheaper. But over the next decade, we expect those dynamics to dramatically change. Yeah, and I, I, I could point uh, for those people that don't realise it, that Japan's announced this target of, I think, a 45 46% reduction in emissions from 2013 levels uh, by 2030. Now, no mm-hmm. one's got a clue how they're going to achieve it, uh, and you can either believe it or disbelieve it, but if you take the Japanese Prime Minister at his word, uh, then you'd think they'd get cracking very quickly. Can we just come back and talk a little bit about uh cost uh, sort of things. I mean, I think we've talked a little bit before that um, one of the key cost drivers for green ammonia is the electrolyzer utilization. Uh, You can't really use the grid to produce green ammonia because it's nearly always got a fossil fuel or something in it. Maybe down in Tasmania, you could have a go at it. So it's it's essentially for green ammonia, it's an off-grid application and then you run into the variability of the wind and the solar. Can you just talk a little bit about uh, how your project approaches that issue? Mm. No, you're right. The biggest cost contributor to the cost of ammonia is the cost of energy. So that's both the raw cost of the electrons and the capacity factor at which they're available. So in our case, I mean, every project's different, but for our project, about 49% of the cost of ammonia is the cost of energy. Um, and so it's, it's really important to have you know, as cheap electrons as possible, but also to have the electrolyzers running as much as possible. Because yeah, um, uh, the, the downstream infrastructure, including ele- electrolyzers, are more you know, capital intensive than the upstream, the wind and solar. So you want to you crank the downstream as much as you can. In our view, that means having massive scale and also having sites that have both wind and solar where it's windy at night and sunny during the day. So that's that's really, you know, a key part of our project. We, we spent a year looking for the best site that had enormous scale um, and also had the right combination of wind and solar. And I think you're talking about a capacity factor utilisation as high as 70% or something? Yeah, we can. Um, we will. Uh, we expect to have a utilisation factor on our electrolyzers of around 72%. Yeah. And, and, and will you, I'll just hand it back to Giles after this one, but some projects I've seen have tried to approach this by putting a battery in or something to use the excess production because sometimes the wind and solar will be in excess of the electrolyzer capacity and you can 
I mean, you can run a best store a battery to keep it going when the when the wind when say at night time or something. Is that how it works? So bear in mind the scale that we're dealing with. We're we're going to be generating around ninety eight terawatt hours per year. So batteries are just a drop in the ocean at that scales. Uh, effectively, where you know where. Um, uh, we're storing energy in chemical form as molecules. So, you know, initially we store it as hydrogen and then we store it as ammonia in large tanks. And that's what we're transferring to other countries. You know, the, ben- the benefit of fossil fuels is, that, I mean, basically fossil fuels are just energy storage. That's all they are. Uh, they just happen to have downsides of being finite and being dirty. So we're, we're turning wind and sun into you know new types of fossil fuels effectively new types of liquid fuels that you can store and transport easily just like fossil fuels so yeah bat- batteries will be part of the mix but probably at a small scale the key the key here is actually how you combine a variable wind and solar upstream generation with a downstream process, ammonia production, that wants to typically operates in steady state in the fossil fuel world. How do you combine variable up, upstream with steady state downstream? That's the challenge. That 98 terawatt hours, just to put that in context, is um, equivalent to um, one half of uh, the output of Australia's electricity grid. I've just got one very technical question here. You talk, um, you've got um, a diagram from your presentation, 16 gigawatts of wind, 10 gigawatts of solar equates to roughly 14 gigawatts of electrolyzers. Is that kind of like a simple formula, sort of electrolyzer capacity will roughly equal half of the wind and solar capacity, or is that just kind of how you're in particular intending to sort of um, sort of set it up? Yeah, I think the latter, Giles. I mean, every site will be different. Um, we like we we performed a feasibility study for for a whole year in 2019, uh, running through hundreds and hundreds of scenarios of different capacities. You know, wind, solar, electrolyzers how to lay them out, which technologies to use. And what sort of came out of that study was that mix. So 16 gig of wind with 10 gigawatts of solar, uh, powering 14 gigawatts of electrolysis. But every site will be different. And producing about 10 million tonnes of green ammonia. So how much does ammonia sell for a tonne? So currently, um, dirty ammonia is, um, you know, the spot sort of price is sort of mid $200 US per tonne. Mm-hmm. Uh, green will be a little bit more expensive, not that much more. Um, but yeah, it's, um, that, that's indicative numbers. So between sort of two and $400 a tonne. I'll try and do some mental calculations later on to see what sort of revenue you might be getting out of this investment. But just on this, I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot more about the sheer scale of investments. The um, hydrogen minister in WA, yes, they've actually got one, um, was talking about 100 gigawatts of um, wind and solar capacity by 2020. Now, we've heard of Andrew Forrest talking about his own plans in the Pilbara and other people further south in the Murchison and the Midwest, etc. Are you all going to be? Is it, is it going to be room for you all? Um, possibly eventually, but maybe is there a bit of a race amongst you to get in there first? Um, how are you sort of? How important or how worrying is all this competition? Or maybe it's all just very good. So I, I think of it from a global decarbonisation perspective and a Team Australia perspective. So firstly, you know, we've got an enormous challenge ahead of us to decarbonise the world in the way that is needed to, to you know, limit runaway climate change. So we need a rapid transition away from fossil fuels and ammonia energy is a, is a really key way to do that at scale. So, so we need lots of projects like ours. We, we want others to succeed 
Um, obviously, at the moment, I mentioned before, there are, the markets are emerging, but they could come on quite quickly. So, you know, we need lots of scale, lots of projects to feed into that global market. Australia has lots of competitive advantage. We've got lots of land. We've got lots of sun and lots of wind. And we've been doing renewables successfully for, for several decades. And we've been, you know, developing and exporting fossil fuels and other commodities for decades. So I think, you know, we're really in a great position as Australia to play a big part in this future decarbonised you know, global supply chain. Andrew, I, I've got a couple of questions and I don't want to uh, finish on a down note, but I do want to ask about one thing that I think is an issue in using ammonia, uh, particularly when you try to use it instead of gas in a gas-style generator, and that is nitrous oxide emissions. Can you just mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Okay, no, that's a good point. Um, that is the challenge in some uses of, of ammonia. Um, I mean, you know, no fuel is perfect. Ammonia is certainly not perfect. It, it's a noxious gas that, you know, you don't want to go breathing large concentrations of it. Um, and it does, if it's burnt at a high temperature without uh, controls, it can produce nitrous oxide, which is a, a bad greenhouse gas uh, and causes acid rain. So um, in coal-fired power stations where this will probably start, Ammonia is already used to denox the emissions of the coal-fired power stations. Now, instead of just using it to clean up the emissions, it's going to be used as a fuel. Um, within boilers, the, the temperatures are not high enough and, and the, the combustion be, can be controlled enough to contain the NOx. So the Japanese are leading this work and they're, they're very confident that NOx emissions will not be a problem in coal-fired power stations. Um, it, it, it will be more of an issue in gas turbines. So they're developing ammonia gas turbines that operate at much higher temperatures and do create more NOx emissions. Um, however, they are confident that within sort of four or five years, uh, ammonia gas turbines will be commercially ready uh, that, that do contain NOx emissions to acceptable standards. But um, the, the next market is shipping fuels. Again, you know, ship engines that burn ammonia, combust ammonia, are under development right now. They should be ready in three or four years. And the OEMs are very confident that NOx emissions will not be a problem. That's great. I'll just ask one more question and it's, it, uh, say before I do that it's been a fantastic and clear explanation and I, I love uh, hearing about these projects even while recognising just uh, how ambitious they are. Uh, you know, probably few people have such well-developed models as you or at such scale to actually talk about the, the cost of the hydrogen and indeed the cost of the wind and the solar uh, uh, that will go into the making of the hydrogen what about this two Aussie dollar target that the Australian government's talked about for hydrogen? And, you know, is your electricity price that you kind of imagine for the wind and solar, if you look at that, are we talking at something that starts with a three or a four? So, yeah, it's a timing issue, really. So um, I think we'll, we'll be very close to that target. We're certainly, you know, well less than $2 US. Um, $2 Australians is difficult in the very short term, in the medium term, definitely. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the cost of, of green ammonia just goes down and down over time as wind and solar and electrolyzers go down in cost over time. So it's a timing issue. But I, yeah, I won't get any more specific than that. <laughs> Andrew, um, I can certainly testify to um, the issue about the uh, the fumes from the ammonia. My first job after school was shoveling chicken shit in the poultry farm, and um, the idea of ten million tons of this stuff is a little overwhelming. Um, so, um, congratulations on the sort of the scale of your ambition. What's the next? 
thing that needs to fall into place for you to move forward to at least sort of kicking it off? I mean, you're not going to build 26 gigawatts in one go, but you're going to start, you have to start building in 25, 26, but there's a few ducks you need to line up before then. Um, principally, what are they? Okay, so firstly, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been, we've, we started six, year, six years ago. Um, late last year, we achieved our first environmental approval for 15 gigawatts of wind and solar. Then we, lo- we started our approval process for 26 gig of, of wind and solar and all the ammonia production and export. So approvals is the first thing. Um, then obviously progressing to detailed engineering and then procurement and then financing. So you know, each of those steps is non-trivial. So realistically, um, our first export phase should reach an investment decision in 2025. And then, you know, our first export should start in around 2028. So obviously, another key part of that is, you know, signing offtake uh, contracts, you know, like any renewable project or any commodity project, you know, without, without sales, you have no revenue and you can't you know, finance it and construct it. So, yeah, we're, we're progressing with the development and obviously, you know, we're in active conversations with, uh, with potential customers. Well, good luck with that, Andrew, and thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Great. Thanks, gents. Well, that was Andrew Dixon from CWP. David, the, the scale of this is extraordinary. I mean, as I said, when I was sort of shoveling uh, chicken manure um, after leaving school, a job I lasted in for about 36 hours, um, I didn't think ammonia would be coming straight back at me in such great scale. No, well, I hope it's not in the form of chicken shit coming straight back at you, uh, Giles, because that's probably not going to do much good to you or anyone else. Uh, uh, but uh, <laughs> it is a uh, look. It's terrific to hear the enthusiasm that Andrew is still approaching the project with five or six years in, and uh, it's also kind of interesting and a map of how the technology uh, phase has changed as he's moved as that project has moved using its wonderful wind and solar resource from you know sending a cable to Indonesia through to hydrogen through through to ammonia and i think for many of us ammonia is a relatively new topic and it's certainly you know 26 gigawatts even at the capital prices we're talking there it's it's obviously going to be I don't know, well over 20 billion, more like 30 or 40 billion dollars of investment. It's, it's, uh, it's big. It's big, yes. Well, um, at, his, at his $200 a tonne for green ammonia or up to $400 a tonne, that's between 2 and $4 billion a year if they can produce that much. So um, I'm not quite too sure what that means. But, um, it's um, yeah, I mean, the scale of it is extraordinary. But, I mean, as, we, as we've said, that this is not the only project of this scale. You've got the Sun Cable Project, which is 14 gigawatts and a massive battery, and that's still going with the cable to Singapore. You've got Andrew Forrest talking about up to 40 gigawatts, although we don't really know much about his plans. But it just seems that every second company is talking about some sort of massive green hydrogen plan somewhere. Um, but most of them are really just bubbles of ideas rather than um, anything really meaty. Yeah, no, the um, CWP has got a track record of getting wind projects done, but I mean, this is orders, orders of magnitude bigger. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's, it's very, very hard to make big projects like this actually happen. I don't think anyone should underestimate uh, the difficulty of it. Well, it's interesting. Their, their their new chairman is actually Grant King from LNG uh, from Origin, who was behind the um, big LNG projects, which was not entirely successful. And he's now also chair of the Climate Council. Oh no, it's not the Climate Council, the Climate Change Authority. So, um, interesting pairing and an interesting person to have there. But um, one um, thing I'll say that... about Grant King is he's never had any trouble thinking big. Uh, it's just it's often been 
occasionally big, <laughs> big, big losses. Well, talking about big losses, um, the um, the Morrison government, Angus Taylor, has decided he's going to build, or Snowy Hydro is going to build his gas generator at Curry Curry. Um, $600 million of taxpayers' funds, mainly because Snowy Hydro couldn't possibly afford it without the extra injection of taxpayers', taxpayers money. But most people think it will probably struggle to be um, economic anyway. Um, what do you make? I mean, there's so many ways to think about this, um, David. It came on the same day as the IEA said no more gas and um, coal projects if we're going to meet 1.5 degrees. Um, it's come despite you know repeated criticism from everyone in the market. The whole, the whole um, you know uncertainty about whether this project would go ahead has probably actually caused other projects to sort of stall and balk. Um, and at the same time, Snowy gets his gas plant and an even bigger share of the market in New South Wales. Yes, I think there are, as you say, many ways to frame it and everyone will look at it from their own perspective. Uh, I, I would observe that, in fact, uh, whilst I'm as green as the next person, except you probably, but I'm a relatively green person, but I, I would say that the actual gas and carbon emissions from this plant with its, you know, very low capacity factor are going to be very minor in and of themselves. Uh, that's what I would say about that. But I think Maybe it's... Maybe because we'll have it be switched on. Yes, that's right. And <laughs> the, the next thing that people need to understand is plants like this are insurance policy plants. You know, it's just like you hope you never actually need to... You, people buy insurance even though they don't think they'll actually have to make a claim. And they're happy to pay for their insurance every year even if they don't make a claim. And it's the same in thinking about these kind of uh, insurance gas plants. They're there for the time for retailers, for the times when everything else isn't working, and you, but you still need to keep the lights on in that famous phrase. And so they they sell capacity, uh, they sell protection, and you can you don't run them very often. But as you mentioned, uh, the way I look at it, if we just look at New South Wales, Victoria, and South Australia combined. Uh, and take into account the hydro and gas generation of all the players, Snowy will have 60, basically two-thirds almost, of all of that capacity. So if it wasn't for batteries, uh, you know, thank God that the Snowy people don't aren't even allowed to think about batteries because, you know, uh, you know, if, if they talked about batteries and went to the federal government for that, well, Keith Pitt would probably can't even say the word, as we know. <laughs> and if anyone wants to see com comedy at its finest, you should watch Keith Pitt explaining, trying, trying to avoid saying the word battery. I mean, in all honesty, it's one of the funniest things that's been on uh, on on Twitter for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Well, Snowy, Snowy Hydro and its CEO Paul Broad has not been a big um, fan of batteries, but it's interesting actually talking to some of the battery storage developers and project owners out there. And I said, well, how do you think this affects you? And they think, well, not really at all. One, because our batteries are faster, um, they're cheaper, and they're cleaner than these uh, gas-peaking power stations. And um, they won't just be operating five or six days a year. They'll be operating almost every day a year because they can do multiple different things. So they didn't think that they were going to be disadvantaged too much about it. So, but it's going to be interesting to see how that kind of balances out in the end, I guess. I guess yeah, yeah. So, so, so batteries and gas play in different markets. There's been quite a lot of uh, academic studies now that show in what I call the daily balancing market. That's the four, that's the two-hour market window every evening, basically, on average, uh, when the sun goes down and d demand is high. That's when you need some 
uh, firm in power. Batteries play in that daily market pretty well. And once you've installed a battery, you know, it, 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 can, uh, it can charge and recharge itself. It's only got to cover its round-trip efficiency. So, you know, if it, if it buys the electricity for 30, it can sell it at, I don't know, 45 and still make a, a marginal return. But it can't cover its cost of capital. To cover its cost of capital, it needs to be selling for 100, say, and buying at like 20 or 10. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, with excess solar today, so one of the problems with the gas plant is it can't do it. It can meet shortages in, in, in uh, demand, but it can't do anything to mop up the excess supply that we're going to get in the middle of the day. Uh, so it's actually, it only solves a little bit of the problem from that, from that perspective. Um, mm. there's, there's quite a lot of issues with it. And I just want to point out the general issue is Snowy trashing their reputation uh, to a large extent, I think. Uh, ever since uh, um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull allowed them to be bought by the federal government and go on this expansionist pro- uh, phase, they're now trying to do uh, you know this 600 million capex as as well as I don't know four or five billion dollars uh, or six billion dollars of Snowy two at the same time. They've got a chairman David Knox uh, who's uh, presided over over the GLNG, the Gladstone Santos, he was the chief ex- executive of at a time when that lost billions of dollars in shareholder value uh, and, and, and as a gas guy from right back. So, you know, Snowy's gone from having a reputation as kind of the green, clean thing that everyone Australian is so proud to have been associated with, with the Snowy Mountain Scheme to this big mother that's trying to dominate the reserve capacity market and, and is anything but clean, hmm. and just a tool of federal government policy. Well, um, good points all made. Um, love to sit on that one for a while, but we can't. We have to move on. Um, $600 million wasn't the biggest lump of taxpayer money for, um, rolled out the door by Angus Taylor this week. We also had $2.3 billion to support Australia's last two remaining oil refineries. Um, you can see possibly why they might have thought that was a good idea, but in the lack of anything to support the EV industry and the contrast of what's happening in America um, this week, um, just today we had Joe Biden driving in a Ford electric ute um, designed by traders, which was finally unveiled um, um, today as well, and he's um, going full blast with his EV transition plan. Um, IEA came out this week and made it very clear if we're going to meet 1.5 degrees, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast uh, with um, Ant- with um, Andrew, um, uh, no more oil and gas um, and uh, no more fossil fuel cars to be sold after 2035. Um, Australia still doesn't seem to get it as far as transport goes. No, of course it doesn't get it. Uh, You know, again, I I think of the three stooges running energy policy in this country. Uh, It's Keith Pitt, as I I mentioned, and it's... uh, uh, it's Angus Taylor and, and, and it's for transport. It's Michael McCormack, you know, who, who you know, to be uh, a bit nasty and mean about it, I think has trouble reading the teleprompter lines, uh, let alone coming up with a coherent policy. Uh, look, the, the, the thing about it is it, it's terrible economics, basically, to keep those re- refineries uh, going. About half the money will probably be handed straight back to shareholders. And the fact is that Australia imports either oil and petrol at the moment, and it doesn't really matter which one we import. It's cheaper to make the petrol in Singapore because the refinery is bigger, and we might as well as import the petrol as the oil. The security risk is exactly the same. It's, it's local jobs that are affected. 
And I would, you and I would argue very strongly that as the $2 billion had been put towards building the electric vehicle industry, we could make a dent in the $20 billion of oil that we import every year or oil products, whether it's petrol or oil, uh, permanently. You know, there's nothing, we've said it so many times, it just gets boring. But with a decent EV policy, we would have lower imports of oil. Now, the other thing to mention in this is, uh, and it goes to this hydrogen project, is that Japan's announced this extremely ambitious 45% reduction target by 2030, uh, you know, from 2013 levels. And here we are in 2021. If they're going to take that seriously, they're going to have to act very, very quickly. And oil is one of their biggest imports. It's a bigger import uh, in dollar terms, certainly, than the coal or gas. And, of course, they're Australia's biggest customer for those two things. Uh, but if, they, if they're going to reduce their oil imports, that means they're going to be electrifying their vehicle fleet, right? Now, Japan is the biggest source of uh, cars in Australia right now. We're not get, they're not going to be selling the petrol cars fairly soon. So you can just see all, all that the writing is on the wall. is crystal clear to everyone, but uh, I've no doubt that all those three stooges I've mentioned are going to get re-elected in their very safe electorates by saying the same things that they've been saying for years and years. Mm-hmm. And just sort of going over um, some other news, we also saw ARENA um, new legislation or regulations coming through to push it into carbon capture and storage and sort of, you know, sort of straight sort of gas clean, blue, hydrogen, something or other projects. So it's kind of like... Um, look, I mean, it, 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 it's almost reducing. I mean, and, and those projects will be chosen by Taylor's office and the government. So it's almost as though Arena has just now been reduced to basically sort of managing um, funding yeah, decisions uh, made by the government. I agree with that, Giles. And the writing for that's been on the wall for ages. You know, I, I do think, you know, I, I, I'm not anti liberal per se at all. You know, I support the liberal government just to talk about politics in, in, in New South Wales and what, Matt, what Matt Keane is doing. We, we on this podcast have supported the liberals in South Australia with their plan. I don't have any problem with that at all. But I think the way that the federal government is going about policy. The cronyism of the way they're appointing people all over the place that that are all kind of and and, and just announcing things with it. I mean, uh, this this plant in Curry Curry, it's not about reliability. That's been admitted. It's about lowering the price. But how it's going to lower the price when there's no increase in competition hasn't been explained at all. I mean, there's just no no coherent policy documents or framework behind it. And I say that on every podcast. So I guess I'll have to crack a few dad jokes because what else are we going to say next time? Well, we will find something to say next time. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I just want to highlight a couple of other podcasts that we've got going at the moment. We've um, got this new podcast uh, called Great Solar Business, which, as the title suggests, is really just focused on the solar retailers out there, very much an industry one. But the interview that uh, Nigel Morris has done this week with Martin Green, the um, father of PV in Australia, is really quite interesting, just sort of talking about the transition, where we've come from, where we're going, and just how cheap solar can be and how big the solar arrays may be in your roof. So do listen to that one i also want to give a bit of a shout out um uh, or just an acknowledgement to um govind khan um the um the sales director of trina in australia um very well known very well respected much loved man who um, tragically died of COVID 19 in india this week and um, the tributes have been pouring into um for, for Govind and uh, we've got a story on Renew Economy and also on One Step Off the Grid um, about that and um, that's tragic news. Um, also shout out for our um, Driven podcast which will be up again next week and the uh, Solar Insiders podcast. 
podcasts everywhere. Keep you busy while you're doing the gardening, taking the kids to school or doing the washing up, as we heard people do when we were walking around the conference last week. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Avagen, and we'll be back again this time next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.